Hey everyone, this is Mercy Sugai. I'm a graduate student in the higher education program at Syracuse University and a graduate assistant in the Office of Student Activities. I'm also lucky enough to co-chair the Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month Planning Committee with Huey Xiao, Associate Director of Multicultural Affairs and the Kessler Program and Interim Director of the Disability Cultural Center. AAPI Heritage Month is traditionally celebrated in April on campus while students are still here, while it's celebrated in May nationally. This year's theme is regrounding, celebrating our identity. These past two years have been challenging for the AAPI community in light of the pandemic and the rise in anti-Asian hate and bias. There is still a time for us to reclaim our identities and find pride, strength, and joy in who we are, and we share this with the university community. This year, the AAPI Heritage Month Planning Committee is partnering with the Census Project, which is housed in the Office of Supportive Services. OSS serves students in the Arthur O'Eve Higher Education Opportunity Program and TRIO Student Support Services. The Census Project uses audio recording to create a unique and dynamic student community with the goal of increasing marginalized students' sense of belonging by leveraging their creative potential through podcasting and music production. By sharing marginalized students' stories, the hope is to create a more inclusive and understanding university community. Isaac Ryu is a senior in broadcast digital journalism at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications and also a member of the AAPI Heritage Month Planning Committee. In this podcast, Isaac sat down with Sejin Kim and Shirley Chen. Sejin is a senior studying in the College of Visual Performing Arts at Syracuse University, and Shirley is a sophomore from the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Isaac, Sejin, and Shirley shared their experience of being part of Generation C. Generation C is what we're calling the current group of undergraduate students whose college experience was impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Take a listen. Okay, welcome to podcast episode Generation C, joined by some lovely people. (laughs) Stop laughing. (laughs) Um, You guys want to introduce yourselves, names, pronouns, why you're here? My name is Sajin. Um, I use they, them pronouns. I'm a studio art major in VPA. I'm a senior. And today I wanted to bring the perspective of somebody who is trans, queer, Asian um, on this campus. And yeah. Hi, I'm Shirley. I'm a sophomore majoring in environmental studies at ESF. I use she, her pronouns. And Isaac told me to come today. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> My name is Isaac, broadcasting journalism major. I'm a senior, pronouns he, him, his, and um, just here to share our experiences, guide the conversation a little bit. So a little bit of background, college students in COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot to, there's a lot that comes with that. So I saved the hardest question for our first question. Okay. Please. Ready? Yeah. Describe the pandemic in one word for you, if you can. Wait, hold on, my brain's, like, turning. Yeah. Does it have to be adjective? Um, feel free to describe it any way you'd like. I'll expand it to maybe one sentence. How about that? I'm gonna say... I'm gonna break the rule and say two words. <laughs> okay, go for it. I'd say radical acceptance. Oh, okay. Wanna expand? Oh, I thought it was only one word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. But I can expand. Sure. You said describe COVID. Mm. Um, I'd say that a lot of, it was just a huge reality check and like what's staying, what isn't, and you just kind of have to deal with it. I think with COVID, like, at least for me, if I was the president or had any type of authority, I feel like I would have dealt with it so differently. But since I'm not, and the people who are dealing with it 
want black and brown people to die, want poor people to die, want disabled people to die, want queer and trans people to die. Like, I feel like in that way, it's been, it's been just a process of radical acceptance for me and also kind of like, not to be such a pessimist, but like also like, where do we go from here? So maybe I'd add like imagination to that mm -hmm. too. Um, it just feels like so much of the, like a lot of people call COVID, like the summer, like March, 2020, like freedom summer, where a lot of people were reading books, educating themselves and everything. And in that way, I feel like COVID has really radicalized a lot of people. Shirley? Um, I would probably say history because COVID happened during my senior year of high school. And it was low-key kind of funny when I was reading all these history books. And that was around the time I also started reading into Asian history in America and like what our ancestors had to go through. Also kind of just believing that wouldn't happen in this generation and then also getting a reality check and then having to live through these historical times that are going to be in future generations' histories books that they're mm -hmm. gonna learn about. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, it's probably jarring. Um, it kind of ties into reality check and kind of seeing how historical the time period was, is. Yeah, I think as a journalism major, just like seeing how news orgs cover issues that we experienced, I think there's a lot of things to work on, mm -hmm. obviously. And I don't think those things can change even in the next year or two, but definitely I think people saw that wound that was only covered by a Band-Aid as opposed to like actually addressed. So mm -hmm. yeah, um, we'll change it to a more positive note. What's one good lesson that you learned from the pandemic? I can start if you guys want to think a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one thing that I learned is everyone takes, uh, everyone experiences trauma at a different pace. So it's important to have patience. Mm. Um, I would say I'm not a particularly patient person. And the way that I process certain things is different from other people. And I think learning that was really hard for me during the pandemic. Because um, I had a lot of friends who took it in different ways, and it was hard to, it was hard to help and hard to listen and all these different things. So, I think I'm working on it. But I think that's one of the things that I learned that's positive, I guess, compared to the other lessons. <laughs> um, I guess one of the biggest lessons I learned is learning to take breaks and not waiting until I'm at a breaking point to do that. Sorry. No. Uh, so, like, again, COVID happened at the end of my senior year, and that was a time after I applied to a lot of college applications and scholarships. And I it was kind of just fast-track everything, like, speed 100%, like, 120%, trying to get it done. And then when COVID hit, everything was put on pause. So, positive note, I was able to take a break from everything else and just focus on myself. So during this time period, I've gone to like process through my traumas a lot more and be more appreciative to the friendships I had and also just like rebonding with my family a lot more. The main thing that I guess I did during COVID was being really comfortable with myself and being alone. Um, I always 
used other people and friendships as an escape. And I think that put a lot on, on other people. I'm still trying to navigate, like, I don't know, like before COVID, I was always like waiting for other people to, waiting on other people, basically. And now I'm trying to find, not be upset with that, but be more accepting of the fact that other people have everything, a lot of other stuff going on. I guess it, okay. I think COVID just made me zoom out a lot. Mm. I was always so focused on the everyday nitty gritty. Like if someone doesn't open a door for me, I'm like, oh my God, they hate me. They didn't hold the door open for me. But now it's like, nah, they're in a rush. They got to go. Like, and that is just a bigger metaphor for like everything. Like everyone is on their own timing. But, and then on the other hand, finding community and that support system, it has just been a priority for me like it hasn't been for the past four years mm. so that's it nice i guess talking about community and zooming out obviously during covid asian asian americans pacific islanders experienced a dramatic increase in hate crimes mostly in large cities other places as well but how did you guys first react to it and as they continued to happen did your mindset change or were you more upset more angry apprehensive towards these things what was kind of your thought process going through it it's a big question but i have a story sure so um i was on the subway one time and this was like on the f train towards jamaica and this man on the subway kept tapping my shoulder and i was like oh nah i'm not gonna engage don't interact i just blasted my music and he just kept tapping my shoulder so i was like what's going on I was holding my AirPods case and he's like, oh, is that like, and he tapped my shoulder. And I was like, okay, fine. I took my headphones off and he was like, is that like an alarm or like a pepper spray? And I was like, um, I have my pepper spray. Do I need to use it? <laughs> and he was just like, no, like, um, I've been thinking about getting one for my daughter. This man was like an older Asian man. And I was like, oh, like, I, I know we talked about the like different protection systems for a while, but honestly, I never interact with people on the subway and it was just really an interesting moment for me that it wasn't like every time that I interact with like men, especially on the subway, it's terrifying. It's uh, not something I want to do and I'm really scared. But this time we kind of bonded over the Asian hate crimes. Not like that, but we were talking about ways to defend ourselves. We talk, And he was like, I was like, yeah, it's really bad out here. You know, like it's real. You have to learn, know how to protect yourself. And he was like, I think it's always been bad. And in that moment, I was like, oh, whatever. Like, I was like, uh, I need this conversation to be over. And I just kind of left. But I realized a couple of things that I've never, um, I think a lot of other communities of color, they kind of recognize each other in public, you know, like give each other a nod, whatever. But I don't, that's definitely in me. And that's definitely like the type of person that I am. But a lot of the time on Syracuse campus, that's not really reciprocated. That sense of community or acknowledgement that, hey, you're an Asian person in a space that, isn't made for us mm. that isn't really there so that kind of really sat with me for a while like wow I'm really on the subway in a public place interacting with people about issues in our community um but I, I want to hear Shirley's thoughts and then have like a critique sure <laughs> okay from my perspective um like I said earlier I started learning more about Asian American history and then the hate crimes started coming into the news. But the way they were reported, it was all victim blaming. 
So I got very mad at mass media and mainstream media at that. And then also not seeing any support from people made me angry too. So it was a bunch of emotional time periods. And then also realizing that the people in the news could have been like my family because we we were, were from New York City, like the Manhattan area, and we grew up in Brooklyn too. So it did make me cry a lot reading those headlines and then realizing that could very well be one of my relatives, especially um, like my grandma and my mom, who's very fragile on those things. And also just putting myself into that perspective. If someone came up to me on the subway, tried to push me onto the train tracks. Um, But I think another side of it is because I have a very close connection to New York's Chinatown and having to read all those headlines about the restaurants closing, um, it really just broke my heart because I personally do know some of those. Well, they don't know me, but I know them because I always go to the restaurants and um, food for my culture, like Bwamian, and one of the restaurants is something that I didn't want to see them close down the business because of COVID, because of people harassing them. So when I went to Brooklyn again, um, I think it was over Thanksgiving break, and I saw how lively it was still um, and how like full of lives they were because a, a grandma like yelled at me for being stupid. <laughs> 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 no, it was like disturbed, but it was just very nice to see and seeing they still have their heart in the restaurants um, and they're still thriving despite like everything that's happened during the pandemic they're not letting it stop them from living their lives okay i definitely want to start with like the whole like seeing the way the media handled asian hate crimes and everything was honestly atrocious like Mm -hmm. i i think that once again we we had to see this like a lot of reports or propaganda i don't know the proper term but just like this idea that a lot of anti-blackness came from mm. the whole like Asian hate crime thing. And that isn't something that we can ignore. Um, there's definitely, you know, partially on the on behalf of like the people reporting the news and the way they frame it, it it's like hard not to draw comparisons to like whatever, but I definitely saw a lot of anti-blackness um, in that. I just wanted to mention that. And then the other half of the critique, I guess, is that I really felt like that the response was so different. Um, when Asians are being attacked on the street, it's like, oh, they need to learn how to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. They need to learn how to like protect themselves, which yes, harm reduction is great. Like I, I love that we're getting free pepper spray. Like I'm sure it's saving lives out here, but it's really reminiscent of when, when, when I'm like talking to my non-Asian friends about, hey, like I feel like I'm not feeling like an equal. I feel like people look at me less than, or I feel like people talk to me like I'm supposed to nod my head to everything that they say. They talk to me like I'm a doormat. And that same, a lot of my friends who don't really understand it kind of have that same response of like, oh, you just gotta be tougher. You just like check any bitch that tries you, like be unfuckable with. But like, I don't really see the need to change myself because other people are ignorant like and I am so I'm not saying that giving out free pepper spray and saying Asians have to stand up for themselves I do think that our community needs to learn how to advocate for themselves a lot more in spaces but yeah that that was just a 
something that always stuck out to me. It was never like, let's have sympathy and empathy for these Asian Americans that, and let's help them mourn. It was more like, all right, guys, like, this is the response. I don't know if I'm, if y'all are understanding. Mm. No, I get that. Cause, and the people they're going after, it's not like they could defend themselves. It's always like our elders. Right. The most vulnerable. Right. So. Yeah. Can a grandma protect herself from being lit on fire when she's walking home from the grocery store? Like, yeah it's like this expectation that's pushed by social media which i want to get into later i think that's definitely a big topic when it comes to that but also what you're talking about the media like at least from what i've seen i think media organizations are driven more by money and clicks than people realize Mm. and it's really unfortunate right and it's become so polarized and people are like oh this that 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 like why why can't they just cover the story? And why does it why do they have to wait until it's clickbaity enough for them to post about it? Why do we have to wait until the New York Times or a bigger news organization covers it instead of local media which is struggling to keep up with everything that's going on? Mm. Um so I think that's just a bigger systemic problem. Mm. Uh and I don't know how that's going to get solved, but <laughs> <laughs> um so we kind of talked about it on a national scale mm-hmm. and we're zooming out, but now let's zoom back into our campus. What was your experience like? you personally, but also looking around you. So whether that be administration of the school, organizations, friends, stuff like that. Okay, I have... Go off. Yeah, I'll go off too. Basically, the... Okay, I'm a part of Asia. I love Asia. Um, Asian students in America. It, we're all on the e-board, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so... Our own org. But um, it was a huge resource for me, like acclimating to this school, having an Asian American community. That's so important. However, the more I immersed myself in it, the more I realized how like much I disidentified with a lot of the people there. I just think that a lot of the Asian community here is so comfortable with the hierarchies that white supremacy has already built for us. I mean, not to say that we don't we don't like suffer our own things, but I think we need to acknowledge that we do benefit from white supremacy. And I see that so heavily in our org sometimes, at least like our members and our community. Like I myself have faith, like for example, when I first told people about like being trans or my pronouns or using a different name, like using my Korean name, like I had people laugh in my face. Like I had like just, um, so, and I also remember like, I have so many little instances that I can just point back to that showed me that a lot of the people just need to be a lot of the Asian people in our on campus like really need to be educated a little bit more and that really came out in terms of like homophobia transphobia and the ways that we perpetuate it um, anti-blackness especially um, because I don't think that a lot of Asian people have properly addressed that I know you told me a lot about experiencing transphobia. Yeah, people think it's a joke. Like yeah, I'm really not a woman, the y'all. Community, right? Yeah. Um, what I wanted to talk about was we had this uh, political education uh, event hosted by Shirley and I, and it was like <laughs> not the plug. <laughs> no, yeah, it was called "Let's Talk About It." Oh, untold uh, stories of the PWI. Untold stories of the PWI. Let's talk about it, and that was, you know, like. honestly like probably the second event that we've had kind of like a space for mourning a space for like to be free to talk about Asian American experiences and stuff 
And the first one being the AAPI vigil, which was honestly really touching and moving in a lot of ways. But me and Shirley kind of had the takeaway of like, wow, the, some of the peop- the speakers were anti-black in the way that they spoke. Like they they were comparing like the BLM movement to how like, and that's that's not productive and it's really harmful. And Shirley and I really tried to like have these conversations to make sure that we give Asian Americans the proper space to mourn and be free and talk, but it can never be a space where we bring down other minorities or, you know, compare and play trauma Olympics or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like, and we don't need to, and that doesn't have any place in our thing. So I don't know. Do you want to talk more about that? I mostly wanted to go through with that event because um, in my experience, I saw a lot of Asian Americans whenever we talk about our problems, we're just people in the API community. Other marginalized groups always call us out on the anti-blackness and we are there is a huge problem in that, but I mainly just wanted to have a space where people could share their experience, especially on the campus that's predominantly white and where there's not a lot of opportunities for students of color or just Asian students to talk about their experience on this campus. And through that, we found, like, I mean, I remember it was, like, it exposed this need for more um, more space for queer people within the Asian mm-hmm. community here, too. And I'm so glad, like, it's a problem when someone says that they don't necessarily feel at home or comfortable in, um, like, in a space designated for their own people. So I think it exposed a lot of needs in our community while also being a really helpful tool mm-hmm. for all of us to heal. Yeah, I guess since we were talking about not being afraid to, when we talk about accountability for the Asian, the AAPI community on campus, like at least me personally, I feel like you said, there's a lot of people who are comfortable with the mindsets that they have. And when they are called out on it, it's like, someone poured lava on them. They're like, oh my gosh, like, uh," like they don't know (laughs) what's going on. And it's, and they get defensive about it. It's not Mm -hmm. that they realize, oh, maybe what I said or the thing that I said freshman year to someone, maybe that was wrong, right? It's more like, oh, well, maybe the thing that you're doing right now is not appropriate and we shouldn't just be like calling each other out, right? Mm -hmm. I wrote an article for the DO about holding our community accountable, right? And there was one person that I asked to interview and they said, I think what you're doing is wrong. They said, you are attacking communities and instead we should be uh, binding together to create this campus or create a better environment on campus, right? Mm -hmm. And part of me was like, you know, like I understand if you don't trust me to write the right story, but when is it gonna, when is it not gonna be enough for us to just keep on saying like, oh yeah, okay, not again, it's you, uh, Asian hate crimes, and I'm going to post about it on social media, and then that's it, right? It's just going to blow over. Right. Um, and that was really frustrating for me, because how are we going to make any progress if we don't address that there are problems, right? It's like, and there are a lot of issues with what that person said, but I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> um, but I think there needs to be, maybe reckoning is too strong of a word, but a realization that where we're at right now is not the place we should be. It's a bare minimum. And yeah, and there are things that are being done on campus that are good, right? Let's not let's not say that that's not happening, but there's more to be done and we shouldn't be complacent about it. Mm-hmm. And ho- mm-hmm. us holding each other accountable is a way to get to that next step. 
I mean, how does anything happen? How does any change happen in the world? There needs to be a recognition of a problem. Mm. And getting to that solution is never easy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it never is easy, but you need to at least take the first step. Can I add in my perspective as a freshman coming in? Sure. So I did see all of those not again SU on social media when I first searched up ESF, Syracuse University. Yeah, I was kind of shocked that was happening. I wasn't sure if I should come or not. But my sister said those things happen anywhere, so you're going to have those problems to any universities you go. So I just ended up coming and given when I went into, because ESF, at that time didn't have any Asian interest orgs. But when I came onto Syracuse campus, I found out about Asia, FSA, Sasa, like all these Asian interest orgs. Um, I was, maybe I was expecting too much, but I just felt like there wasn't enough action being done by any of the e-boards or just any of the members in those community who has been on the board for a while or even in within MGC, within the Greek community. Like there's so you guys have so many Asian like Asian orgs that ESF didn't have, but there was nothing being done. And then there was one event that was hosted that felt really performative. And even the person who hosted it said that they aren't really educated on it. But that's not something to to be proud of or even to say. Yeah. Like, <laughs> shouldn't if you're if you have a position where you have power to create change, why why weren't you doing that? Or why are you doing the bare minimum? And the administrative for both universities, all they sent was one email. Uh, at least that's what my experience was when I came on about, sorry that this everything's happening. Um, here are some resources, the counseling that you guys can have, you guys can go to. And yeah, that's that's all we can give you. That Nothing else, that's it. And then seeing that same reaction from my own community was really hurtful as well. And you know, with what you said, with everyone being comfortable about it, and I felt like no one was angry enough that th these things were happening. I I completely agree. I think, like, the point that you're touching on in terms of, like, how do we, like, our community is angry. Us talking about it and raising awareness is always helpful. It feels good. But the other part of it is how do we now mobilize this community mm. towards change? And I think that part is uncomfortable. That part requires us calling each other out. That part like calls us for holding each other accountable and that's like we can't just have the part of like the the part that feels good about like being able to speak freely like it has to come with educating ourselves reading a book maybe like <laughs> I think in in my other classes like I've taken the, I'm ta I'm in this uh or I take the I took this Latinx futurisms class and I was really kind of, I was so inspired and touched by, again, I feel like I, this is the third time I'm using the word radical, but I really want to emphasize like the radical imagination that inspires change within these stories. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I see enough of that radical imagination within our community. I mean, that's definitely unfair. That's definitely unfair for me to say, but I want our community to break out of these conventions like rooted in academia that we already know, like these kind of like safe patterns to success. And I think, you know, without it being an excuse, but an explanation, I think a lot of Asian Americans like always saw academics or this like equation to success, like, oh, like study hard, get a job, make money, mm -hmm. more babies, like that's success, whatever. And we always saw academia as the means to success. But I think in that it's been really harmful, like us 
us participating willingly in all these, like you said, you said um, these hate crimes are going to happen any any school. All institutions are rooted in white supremacy. And I don't think that, like, we're angry about it enough. And I think that comes with the fact that we benefit from it. Like, we need to understand that, like, this change that will, to me at least, the revolution feels inevitable, really. It really does. But this change that is coming, like, we can't be just so happy with this tiny slice of pie that white supremacy cut for us. Like, we have to understand that it doesn't have to be this way. We have so many more options. Like, I want our community to start mobilizing and thinking about ways that we can sustain change. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about what we what we would like to see happen and what we want to see happen. So what are the next steps? Like what on campus, what do you think are tangible steps we can take to create a more inclusive and connected community? Because I think one thing you touched on, Sejin, was about how there's this divide within the Asian community, but also within the minority community on campus in general, right? One of our friends, Justin, is hosting this uh, talk session about interracial solidarity and conflict, a dialogue between Asian and Black Americans. I don't really remember an event like this happening on campus. If there was, it there wasn't any any more than like five events, right? Mm-hmm. So taking all this into consideration, what is maybe one or two tangible steps that you think we could all take towards... Um, I guess the revolution. I don't know how. To, <laughs> <laughs> I don't Love know how else to explain it. But yeah. I'm gonna start with one, and then maybe Shirley can chime in. But mm-hmm. this is you said tangible. I don't know how tangible this is, but I want self-reflection to mm. be happening. I want Asian Americans to acknowledge their positionality on this campus and even within white supremacy, the ways that they benefit, the ways that it harms them, and really kind of. And hopefully, within that exploration in themselves, they'll realize that how much of all this is effed up like so yeah that's the first one something i saw recently was within the apihm committee all of the events that are being hosted were being organized and then the connection between representatives from different asian interest student works i would like that same energy but year-round and not just during api month i think that's reasonable we can ask for it and it will also create connections between asian orgs so we're not all divided and building personal connections with everyone. I guess something else is, I don't know how the student orgs are run, but maybe if there's um, a political education chair with the other Asian orgs, because we have one for Asia, but I know there are specific issues within like Southeast Asian communities that I'm not really sure if I'm, if I'm like the person to say because I'm East Asian, like to educate other people about it, which say that, so. I really am looking forward to how that event pans out, mm-hmm. the interracial solidarity one. I also think that, like, you know, having cross um, cross organization collabs is really useful and can bond communities together. But I think that bond and that connection has to be done in a genuine way. Like, it can't just be like, oh, we have to show that we're trying to come together as people of color or minorities. Like. It has to be, like, a genuine, like, mm-hmm. care there. It can't be performative. I don't mm-hmm. know how you can make people care, though. Mm. <laughs> Having conversations. True. If I can be radical for a second, if we could start <laughs> all there, maybe we could just all bond together and have a protest. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> to get the administrative to care. Yeah. They still won't care. <laughs> but let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thought would be to invite somebody down here 
to have mm. a conversation here. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Um, so I guess we're closing in on the end of the questions. I still got two bangers left. <laughs> Don't worry. Okay. Okay. What kind of a legacy do you want to leave on campus? And you may answer, even though you're an underclassman. Shouldn't the senior go first? Oh, I think anyone can go first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can go if, if you want to think about it a little bit. I already know. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. oh yeah. Oh, yeah. No. They've been thinking about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really... You know, as much shit I talk about this school, <laughs> I really have tried to step in. I mean, this is not uncomfortable for me, but I've really tried to step into more leadership roles and see mm -hmm. what type of change can happen from the inside. And the type of legacy that I would want to leave is I want queer, trans, Asian students to complain more. I want them to resist more. I want them to be, for them to have options and not feel so confined into this space like um for example like even as like a peer peer leader peer advisor in like vpa and stuff i'm like constantly trying to like warn my asian american peers that of like the struggles that they might face in classrooms how to navigate that like the, my own experiences with that i really and even within asia i want to leave more space for queer people, trans people. Yeah, just making more space. That's mm. the type of legacy I want to leave. I remember they said this, that just being there, like having your presence there is already powerful enough. I don't know, that line really moved me. That is really beautiful. Mm. That is a beautiful thing. I think, uh, I think for me, uh, it's leaving a legacy of being strong and holding people accountable but also being vulnerable i think uh it's really easy to put up a wall and not be vulnerable with the things that you struggle with and the things that you don't know so like for example at that event that we were talking about like i shared that in high school like i was diagnosed with add and while it's still mild i had to take uh, tests in a different room and all those different things but like two years ago I never thought I'd be in front of 20 people sharing that and that's part of my identity right as an Asian American Korean American journalist who wants to do some sort of good in the world I guess but um yeah so being vulnerable being available uh being being able to hold people accountable also holding yourself accountable for the things and mistakes that you've made in the past because I think there's a lot of work to be done, and it's okay to fail. I was I talked to this one guy from ESPN, June Lee. He's a Korean American writer, and I, I was I basically cold emailed him on LinkedIn and was like, "Hey, I'm really struggling with um, what I can do as someone who wants to be a journalist and writing on writing on SU's campus, which is predominantly white, talking about Asian hate crimes." And I felt like this pressure to write the best story every single time. But he said, you know, you can't change the world in one day. Mm. You just can't. But you have to just keep at it, right? And there are times when you're going to fail. And there are times when the change that you're looking for doesn't immediately appear. And I think that really helped. So just like keeping that all in mind. And hopefully, I, from whatever I did in the past four years, someone is able to at least see what I did well and the mistakes that I made and kind of build off of that. You've both impacted me a lot. I hope you know that. 
Not to get emotional. <laughs> I'm about to cry. Yo, no. <laughs> it's recorded. <laughs> I won't cry. Okay. <laughs> okay, Shirley. Okay. Well, I had really big dreams coming in as a freshman, mm-hmm. as expected. Um, when I found out that Asia had a political education chair before I even went to the first event, I knew I wanted that position. Yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. Um, and then I actually ran for it because I was really disappointed by the lack of action that the Ebor was doing during the time. So I really wanted to create big change on the campus. Um, but then I hit a huge wall. And like Isaac told me before, you can't expect to see change in one day. And I was really expecting that within a year. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I learned a really valuable lesson about just all the Asian activists that has been here before me that... Being persistent and being relentless um, and always trying to fight against the system, that's more, that's it's going to leave a more like long lasting legacy than just trying to fight everything in one day. And it's also going to burn you out more. Mm-hmm. I think my imagination or my vision for this campus has really changed since I was able to learn a lot more and connect with more other students of color um, and also getting to know the Syracuse community better and also ESF seeing the difference and the similarities but my main goal is I want to raise the voices of Asian students on campus and like by that event have making a space where they can share their vulnerable stories and open up um because I'm not gonna lie I was kind of disappointed there was five people in the audience but then as I talked to each person they told me that the other people's stories really empower them and open their eyes to issues that they weren't even aware of. So doing things like that and raising awareness for other communities to know the things that we go through um, and just being a voice that doesn't quiet down. Even if it's one person that listens and appreciates mm-hmm. and learns, right? Yeah. So this is my last question. It's pretty open-ended, but feel free to talk as much as you want about it. Um, I was thinking about and reflecting the past four years and remembering all the people that supported me and even if it was for a day or two. um, So if you could thank one person who helped you in some way in the past two to three years, who would you thank and why? I have two. Sure. Oh. Um, So I want to shout out to Yanan Wang, first of all. She was my big in Asia, um, just in terms of like, in, I mean, I already talked about how I struggled acclimating to Asia's community um, and how alienating it felt for me, but Yunnan is just one of the funniest people I ever met ever. And in terms of like, she was really just there for me to listen every single time and is always supporting me. And I think a lot of the times I stopped and questioned like, is it me? Is there something wrong with me that I'm not, being able to like socially acclimate to this community but she kept reminding me and really like kind of empowering me about my own self-worth self-worth and everything and another the next person I want to thank I mean I would want to thank is Kimberly Ng um Kim was a was the president of Asia and held like seats I'm pretty sure the past three years and in terms of Asia's priorities I think it like after she was president it really shifted in a lot of ways I look to her as a mentor as well but she has just an incredible empathy and I think this whole 
like as much as I critique Asian Americans on campus, um, I think that also needs to come with empathy. And she's someone that teaches me that every single time. Um, and she's also really in tune with like, uh, just like politically like injustice and right. how to, and like it has a really good handle on how like trauma and stuff like that works. So she's just been such a, such a force in my life, like being real with myself. She's a Gemini, so she never has any type <laughs> of filter. She always speaks her mind and I know that she's being a hundred percent honest. So I'd say those two people. Mm. Do you, want, do you want me to go? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so I also have two people. Um, the first person is, there's a professor I had in the abroad semester that I spent in New York City. His name is Marquise. Uh, he's a writer for Yahoo. And there was this one time when we were invited to the New York State Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame ceremony. Um, literally, it's just like the top broadcasters all over New York State gathered and there are awards and all these different things, but I was, I kid you not, the only Asian person in that room. I scanned the room and I looked and I was like, wow, this is the first time when I'm like really looking at the state of broadcasting and the state of journalism. And it's literally all white. There was three, three black people or at least black appearing. Um, and it's, it was so stark. It was jarring. And it was honestly really discouraging. I was like, I'm going into this field that's dominated by old white men, right? It's, it's as an Asian American, it's like, whoa, I didn't even know what I was going to do, right? It's like, and I remember I told him after, I was like, man, that was, that was really tough. And he told me, hey, man, I see a lot of potential in you, and I, and I know that you can make an impact. And that was really, it was really powerful. It was really encouraging. Because I think one thing I struggle with is, like, being kind to myself. It's always easy to kick yourself down and say, I can always do better, this and that. But um, he said, I believe in what you're doing, and I can't wait to see you succeed. And I really appreciated that. And that helped me write the article that I was talking about before. I mean, it was 2,000 words. It was a real big one. And I was really encouraged by that. And I'd just like to thank Marquise. It's the GOAT. <laughs> um, and the second person I like to thank is my mom. Um, Aww. Yeah. <laughs> Cute. Yeah. Um, I think she grounded me in a lot of things, and she reassured me, but also held me in check. Because I think I can be kind of a loose cannon sometimes, kind of just you. start launching things out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she always keeps me in check. And one thing that I do appreciate is that she admits when she's wrong and she admits when she can learn um mm. and i really appreciate that because i i think that helped me to be more like her i guess so obviously i'm still working on it but um yeah i think from the day i stepped on campus freshman year and to the beginning of my last semester senior year i think she's been there to i guess guide me kind of like Obi-Wan. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. I don't know. Anyways, Shirley, take it away. Well, I got to go with the trend and thank two people <laughs> as well. Um, you want to do three? That's all. Do <laughs> 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 um, The first isn't a specific person, but it's more of a collective, like community. 
um, all the mentors were, I guess, professors, counselors that I've had. It was, I remember this period of time when I was really struggling hard with depression during high school. And I had this thing where if I told people about it, then they would see me as weak. So I didn't tell anyone about it until it got super bad. And then I had to talk about it. And I remember my high school counselor, when we first had to talk, he was so understanding and he really supported me in a lot of ways, but also my other teachers during the time. I don't know why, but they just really believed in me and they kept telling me that I would do great things in life if I just believed in myself more and just they thought I could do anything that I put my mind to. Um, but also some of the professors here has been really guiding and really understanding. So yeah, all the teachers I've had in the past are really nice. <laughs> Trying not to get emotional here is just kind of hard. Um, it's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, second person, I'm not going to look at you, but I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think I really just needed to meet someone like you because um, you've been a really big impact on my development maturing from like a little bread <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's the person i am today um you've mentioned a lot about keeping other people accountable and you've done that for me but it's resulted in good things um and i really needed to hear the things you've told me <laughs> <laughs> why are you laughing <laughs> Should I not look at you? Okay, I'll look at the wall. No, I'm seriously about to cry. Because <laughs> <clears throat> I honestly feel the same way about Isaac. Not me hopping onto <laughs> We Love <laughs> Isaac. This is turning to the We Love no, Isaac podcast. No, literally. But no, I, I think, I mean, I met you freshman year. And I think ever since then, like a lot of my freshman friends kind of fell off. But I feel like in a way, we always like found each other again and checked mm. in and in terms of someone who genuinely cares, I was like, oh, how do we get people to genuinely care? Like, Isaac, as a community member, I never had to ask him to care. He mm -hmm. just kind of always yeah. did. Which yeah, really means a mature. lot. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. Are you hearing this? My parents? <laughs> Are you listening? <laughs> I'm mature. <laughs> well, I had a thought, but then I left. Oh, oh. <clears throat> yeah, I remember we were talking one day during freshman year, and you told me that you will always be by my side no matter what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you mm. yeah. it's true y'all are sitting next to each other <laughs> <laughs> yeah um thanks guys it means a lot um i think he's blushing <laughs> under the mask yeah, yeah i can the see mask. the pink cheeks <laughs> under the mask but yeah i think the people that i have been surrounded with whether or not they've been there the whole time or come and gone in different stages like it's it's comforting to know that i can always return to someone like sejin right it's always comfortable to know that there's this little underclassman who will annoy me sometimes but is still like so passionate about the state of the world and is is, is so open to learning right i mean that's that's what that's what you can really appreciate about people right mm -hmm. about Shirley. Mm -hmm. but um <laughs> Yes, thank you for your kind words. Um, is there anything you guys would like to add or plug? Anything they have coming up or anything that we should support you in? Mm. What about like a message to the Asian community? Mm. Wake up. No, just <laughs> <laughs> Fight back. 
No, I I love our Asian community. I want there to be more space for um, other marginalized identities within the AAPI community, I think. Mm-hmm. That's the one. Um, all I ask is just listen, but don't listen to listen. Like, actually take in other people's words. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'll just echo. And I think got a lot of work to do, but don't be afraid to start that work yourself. And don't be afraid to start that work with other people. You don't have to do it by yourself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, thank you for listening to our podcast episode. We talked about a lot of heavy things, shared a lot of personal things. So thank you guys. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you to Amy you. for thank having you. us, thank giving you. us the space. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by HOP and SSS's The Census Project. The Census Project encourages self-exploration and community building through podcasting, music, and beat making. You can find out more about The Census Project at SyracuseCensus.com. Through nuanced discussion and dialogue across differences, The Census Project seeks to create a more inclusive community, one podcast at a time. This is Craig Tucker, and we thank you for listening.